I can't just say like I was that confident out of the gate. So it took time. Also, I went to performing arts school. Oh, child. That, what was uh, that like? That, that was so terrible. Like, <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to say that. With thanks to Baileys, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Vic Hope and I'm your host for season five of the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. The podcast that asks women with lives as inspiring as any fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. We have a phenomenal lineup of guests for 2022 and I guarantee you'll be taking away plenty of reading recommendations. Our guest today is Sunday Times bestselling author, journalist and TV presenter Candice Brathwaite. Her debut book, I'm Not Your Baby Mother, was described by The Observer as an essential exploration of the realities of black motherhood in the UK. She's also the founder of Make Motherhood Diverse, an online initiative that lets more mothers see themselves reflected online. When she's not writing, you can find her on TV, encouraging women to be bolder in their fashion choices on Lorraine. She's also the author of a book of essays on black British womanhood, Sister Sister, and her first young adult novel, Cuts Both Ways, is out now. It's so great to have you here, Candice. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. (laughs) I know you're a prolific writer, but what about reading? How much time do you get to read? Oh, do you know what? Not, Not half as much also because I write so much. I feel genuine peer pressure. Mm. Like I'm surrounded by people like one of my workmates, Pandora Sykes. I feel like she reads five books a day. And so sometimes like having a work convo with her really stretches my brain. Cause I'm just like, I, I just, I can't conceive how you read so much. And so I do wish I read more, but with that said, I have a very strict rule to not write a book and read books at the same time. Right. Because I find that another author's voice can like leak into my work. So sometimes on average, I, my books take between six to nine months to write. That's like three quarters of the year of like no reading aside from like magazines or the cut or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's really clipped my reading time. It's funny, isn't it? The more that you are putting words on the page, the fewer that you can take in. And I think many people would possibly Mm. think it was the opposite. Um, But it doesn't work like that. And, you know, and time is a factor too. Yeah, time. And I'm a very late and short sleeper. So I go to bed between 12.30 and 1am and I get up about (gasps) 5.36. I've I've tried. I have tried. I have really tried like I do the meditation I Mm -hmm. I have the bath I do the thing and so there's that also it's like my sleep cycle is so short it then impacts the way I focus like it's a mess all round but yeah I wish I made more time to read those hours um the evening before your like midnight to 1am bedtime and then the morning after you've got up at like half five what are what are you doing where where is your mind where is your body where is my mind where my mind's always like generally five to six years ahead okay 
of whatever I'm doing. And so even the work I'm working on today or books I'm working on today, I'm already in a place where we are casting actors or they're being televised, which sucks because that goes against my whole live in the now. I really struggle to live in the now. I'm obsessed with um, trying to make sure things are as stable as possible for my kids. So like, it's really hard to just turn my brain off Mm. and enjoy the moment. Although I will say... My latest book is YA fiction, which makes living in the moment and enjoying it a lot easier because teenagers and young adults, they're not really concerned with, you know, whatever. They're like, we're into this story right now, which is very helpful. And the best YA fiction, you know, is the stories that mm. we are so in the now inside of that yeah. I remember and I know that you, you've picked Mallory Blackman um, as one of your um, bookshelfy books yeah. but that I remember being so swept away in the worlds that she created that I couldn't think of anything else and that was such a special um, feeling that you, you got to have as a young person that as you get into adulthood you don't really get to enjoy so much anymore no matter how engrossing or transporting the novel but mm. it is, it's very particular of YA fiction to be able to utterly transport you like that and for you to be so present when you're reading it. Yeah, and so to to be part of creating those worlds, I, I, I think I was talking to someone yesterday where I was like, I, in, in a very small way, I get to play God. Yeah. Like I get to form, help shape young people's opinions, their morals and and why why they do certain things and make them question certain things. And that's, re- that's a really powerful place to be because I remember being... 13, 14, and paying way more attention to books and media than what my parents were saying. Like whatever literature was feeding me, that's what was helping shape my adult vision. So it's very cool to be a part of that. Well, let's talk about your first bookshelfy book, which I think Mm. does take us back to you as a a child, as a young person, um, Mm. reading, being engrossed and being essentially mobilised. And it's To Kill a Mockingbird, by Harper oh. Lee. Published in 1960, this book has become a true American classic. Harper Lee's cast of unforgettable characters have passed into literary folklore, as mm. has the unflinching and compassionate way that Lee wrote about the brutality of racism in mm. the Deep South. When exactly did you read this book? I think I think I got into it maybe when I was 13. And if memory, my memory is correct, it was part of the school curriculum which I found really interesting. It wasn't though, because I guess we'll talk about this later. It wasn't my first introduction to that kind of brutality or injustice within literature. Unfortunately, I came up in a time where the only black British writer I can think of is Mallory Blackman. Like black British lit was very thin on the ground. So I was being fed from my travels, my family's travels to America and my American cousins. So there were books before that that kicked the door off the innocence of the world. Because I was raised in South London in Brixton, I didn't really... I don't really understand racism. I was wherever I looked. There were black people everywhere. And so the way that um, American lit framed racism and injustice just took the shine off the world. And I think, you know, luckily and unluckily for me, I think my dad made me watch Roots when I was about nine. Mm. So yeah, like there was just this continuous activation of the reality and... 
Yeah, Harper Lee. I mean, that story as a whole just really set pace for the kind of storytelling I wanted to do, that's for sure. I knew for sure that I, w- I didn't want to be a fantastical writer or fantasy writer or someone that creates these um, foreign, far-flung places because I was like, there is so much to unpack now in this lifetime and in this space. And I did think even then, and I do wonder even now, if Harper Lee was a black woman, would the story have been received in the same way? Would the sto- you know, would it have even it have been published? It seems unlikely, yeah. right? At that time, it seems exceptionally unlikely and it wouldn't have been published to the same reception by any means and people wouldn't have interrogated the themes that are being presented yeah, to them. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I really believe that was a piece of school literature um, and it just knocked the socks off the the English class to be fair yeah. you know what I've never until you said that, I've never thought about how crazy it was that it was on our curriculum because it was for us I think it was a GCSE book yeah it, it, I, yeah, I, think, it I'm was. Like, I, I think I've got the timing a bit wrong but I, I'm I'm adamant this was like something we had to study for for an exam yeah 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 well because I'm similar to you I read it earlier than we were reading it at school my mum had a copy and she was adamant she was like you've got to read this I was like nine and it's yeah. it was from her O levels and it's still <laughs> <laughs> yeah O levels who um, and it still had all of her annotations written in pencil in the margins and that actually I took a lot from that because I saw the way mm. she had studied it it then gave me some kind of analysis because I was young. I was so young and my moral compass was very simple. I was like, well, that's yeah. right. That's wrong. And it, like you just said, threw everything out of the water because I it, I was like, how can it be that mm. things can be so wrong? Yeah. When you have that innocence of a child, it's mm. all the more striking because you haven't been conditioned to think, well, we get by where we get by. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't believe it. And I remember that was it was after reading that. I felt triggered. I guess I was tr- I was a, yeah. a triggered nine year old <laughs> yeah. and mobilized, activate. Like my activism was activated. Yeah, I deeply understand that because I, no matter what school I went to, I know they were all predominantly black at that time. Maybe even two white students at best. And so, even though we're reading material like that, it's really, it's really hard to have fair conversations because most of the class are on the side of experiencing the victim right. or the injustice. So yeah, it was just, it was just really, it was really hardcore. But I think a lot of the books I've picked today are quite hardcore to be fair. They are, but I tell you what, they're some beautiful novels. Um, in To Kill a Mockingbird, of course, we see the story through the eyes of Scout, who is um, incredibly strong-willed. She's a child narrator. Yeah. Do you remember when you read this, do you remember identifying with Scout at all? Absolutely. Um, And in some ways, my Atticus was uh, my dad and my granddad. So I was raised by my maternal grandfather. My granddad was mugged shortly before or after I was born. And it was really brutal. He was left blind in one eye, which deemed him as unfit for work. So he never returned to work. My nan then went out to full-time work and she paid the mortgage this was in the 80s and the fact is some you know a lot of people now can't get their their head around that in our society but I came up in a place where a man did the bulk of the housework and bathed me and fed me and took me to school and women went out to get money and my granddad was severely dyslexic and he used to have this 
terrible, very funny habit of just going to bookshops and like putting five books on credit every week and then bringing them home. None of them were age appropriate. It was like <laughs> war and peace and erotic tales. And I'm like seven and I'm like, thanks. <laughs> like, and he's like, you must understand um, how important it is to read and write because that's been a massive barrier for me. And then there's this weird duality where he's trying to teach me to read and he doesn't really understand what he's reading to the point that even now if like he gets a phone bill or whatever I have to narrate what his letters say um but my granddad was also very especially in black households there is this I find it wrong and bad habit of like um kids should be seen and not heard kids should be kids you know adults come round, kids scurry up upstairs and like when all the adults will come round and play dominoes and drink sherry or whatever on the weekend he would let me stay downstairs he was like no because forming your opinion and being part of the conversation is really important and you will work out what is for you and what is not for you i remember him dragging me out of bed at 2am most nights to watch the oj simpson trial right and i turn up for school the next day and be yawning my head off and the teachers are like what were you doing and I'm like, I was watching the OJ Simpson trial. <laughs> and they're like, this absolute liar. And it's like, no, I actually was. And my granddad was like, this is history. And again, it's going to teach you to form your own opinion. Like, listen to the evidence and let me know what you think. I just can't. That is like bat SH1T crazy parenting style to like just give a young black girl of that time all of that room and then I had a secondary Atticus which was my actual biological father who again was just like reading and writing is so so important and I remember having a conversation with him when I was about eight or nine it was summertime and we went cycling and we pulled over and got some strawberry cornettos and he was like I don't even know how we came to the conversation but he was like do you know Cand um you know I always wanted to be a writer but I was a black boy born in the 60s. And not only was that seemingly not an option, no one was going to allow me or pay me to do that. And I knew from a very, very young age, this was going to be my job without question. I think I must have been about six. And I, I remember looking up at him and just feeling and being like, I already know that I'm going to get to open a door that you were never given a key mm-hmm. for. And so... I had very scout energy. I was always questioning people, much to their annoyance. Yeah, to the point that there are some family friends who don't chat to me now because they're like, Candice is so annoying. I'm like, yep, I love to hear that. I am very, very annoying. (laughs) Question everything. Literally. I love that your grandfather and your father opened these doors by saying to you, read and write, and then the Mm. world will be at your feet. And that you were receptive to that, that you believed actually, yes, it will be. And Mm. also that you recognised that things would be different for you to how they had been for them. Yes, yeah. I, I just knew that so deeply. I knew it wouldn't be easy still because I'm still a black woman trying to navigate these spaces. And I was so blessed to have interviewed Mallory Blackman maybe a couple days ago. Um... And it was really weird trying to hold on to this knowing because the age gap between like myself and Auntie Mallory, she could be my mum. I'm about to be 35, she's like 62. And yet when I was at school reading books, 
she was the light that was like, okay, you can do this. Like there is a Mallory, it's not impossible, but there was only one. And so it still felt like she was this hand-picked unicorn. But again, I just I just had to hold on to the knowing, I guess. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about Auntie Mallory in just a bit. But right now we're going to move on to your second bookshelf book, <laughs> which is Coldest Winter Ever by <gasps> Sister Soldier in a stunning first novel. Renowned hip hop artist, writer and activist, Sister Soldier brings the streets of New York to life with a powerful and utterly unforgettable tale of ghetto-born Winter, the young, wealthy daughter of a prominent Brooklyn drug-dealing family. Provocative and thoroughly entertaining. This is a daring novel of passion, loss and courage. How come you picked it? Oh, just hearing you talk about it like that still gives me chills. I, I couldn't not pick this book. So I've been going to New York since I was in nappies. Um, A lot of my family live in New York. And so there was that pull, that draw. And it's a place that I've always promised I'm going to live in one day. So there was that. But what Sister Soldier was able to do, what Winter Story was able to do in a time way before social media was go viral. You could not buy this book anywhere. Sold out, sold out. That's when you want it the most. Yeah. And I think (laughs) over time... I, there's there's two numbers in my head. It's either sold 4 million copies today or even more than that. And this is before social media. And I remember like it just snaked its way into our all-girls secondary school, got banned. And like, I hadn't reread it until maybe 2020. And I kept thinking, why did they ban this book? And I read it in 2020 and I was like, Jesus, how, <laughs> of course this got banned. This is like this is top tier adult fiction. Like, I don't know how we got away with this, but it was so juicy and so compelling. And it was around a time where I think a writer called Omar Tyree was really big. He had like the fly girl novels and, and having a copy of the coldest winter ever was akin to like having an Averex jacket or like the Moschino jeans with hearts on. And what you would do is you take your art folder. We all carried like these A2 art folders that were see-through and you'd prop that book up, cover out. So at the bus stop, everyone knew you were that girl. It's like... It's an accessory. It's like, you can't (laughs) talk to me. Yes, I have a coffee. Like, and then I remember like really smart girls in our form, like renting their copies out and making money. But yeah, I'd never seen, I'd never seen a book just take hold of a generation like that universally. When you read it um, at secondary school, did you, Mm. did you relate? Like, did you connect (gasps) with Winter? Absolutely. Although she's born in New York, most of us at the time going to secondary schools in South London, we've come from like impoverished backgrounds, so to speak. And everyone's got an uncle who's a drug dealer. Everyone's door's been kicked off once or twice. Everyone has unfortunately known the the process of visiting someone in prison. You know how long those days are going to be. So, so much of Winter's story we were able to connect with and also feel like... Sister Soldier made Winter's story very ghetto, but also very fabulous. And that's the point. It was like the door knocker earrings and the fake furs and the Gucci bags. And alongside that, it was alongside the hard moments. It was also really culturally relevant and 
emulated a style that everyone wanted to be at some point, the baby hairs and the certain haircuts, again, that fly girl world. So it connected with all of us in one way or another. And I think that's why it was such a sensation. There's definitely um, parallels between mm. the fearlessness of the <laughs> character, of also of Sister Soldier, uh, of this book, and the way that you approach difficult topics, um, both mm. in your books, but also on social media. I've been following you for a long time. Mm. And it is, it's, it's, a, it's a straight talking um, yeah. fearlessness. Yeah. Which uh, we've talked about where that attitude might have stemmed from. Mm. But when you've grown and developed and uh, become a mother, become a, a, a public figure, how have you sort of consolidated that? How have, was it a decision? I'm, I'm going to tackle these things. I'm going to do it. Or does it just sort of happen naturally because it had to? I think a bit of both. Also, so my dad died when I was about 20. And I've lost I, a friend of ours was murdered when we were like 17. So I saw death in my life really early on. And I think one of the positives of death, I was just like, wow, I don't have time to waste. And I'm just not involved in like saccharine BS conversations. Can we just get to the heart of the matter? Like I'm very like, this is the reality. Also, I think for so long, especially because I was concerned with my front facing career. I think I played it safe for a really long time, especially because I came into my career in a very predominantly white female space. I was like, well, I have to be like this and I have to be demure because even pointing something out, I don't want to be cast as the angry black woman. And it's like, meh, 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 meh. and then something massive happened publicly in my career. And I was just like, well, that was a waste of time because you guys are going to chat rubbish anyway. You're going to do like, it. And it, oh gonna... my gosh, it was, it's a hard lesson to learn. But when you do, May, it's liberating. You lot are going to chat crud anyway. And yeah. it was like having not right. a bandage yeah, just ripped off. And I was like, okay, if this is how it's going to go, down and I'm going to be made a target or people are going to backstab me I want you to be doing it because you know the real me mm. not because I'm putting up this facade and so many of my readers and followers when they meet me they're like we could we saw distinctly when you became the real you everyone can just pinpoint that moment in time where it's like this is Candy's putting on this glossy professional sheen that she thinks she needs to uphold for her work to be taken seriously and then the very next day it was like Candy's talking in Patois because that's what I do in my house. But I'd never done it like publicly because I'm like, is that quote unquote ghetto? Will I be judged for that? So it took time. I can't just say like I was that confident out of the gate. Also, I went to performing arts school. Oh, child. That, <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> that, that was so terrible. <laughs> like, <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to say that. That was but you know what we just say you're straight talking it was terrible it's it not like fame then I know this sounds crazy because people are like no regrets no regrets no if there was one thing I know I wouldn't change it but if there was one thing I could have foreseen and maybe avoided was going to a performing arts school because it felt like you had to live life on 10,000 every single day. It was literally like being in fame like people doing pirouettes in the lunch hall and all of that jazz but what I am thankful to that for is it like forced me to recognize my voice because you just weren't going to be paid attention to if you were coy or played small. And so there was that. And so I think that that maybe was like the start of it. But 
death pushed it up a bit and then definitely having people trying to publicly sabotage you will just <laughs> make you go right i've got to be all in and it manifests itself both in strength but also in in vulnerability that you're willing to share mm. uh, someone said the other day to me they were like confidence isn't just not feeling nerves when something scares mm. you it's feeling the nerves but doing it anyway it's being yeah. vulnerable but still taking it on mm. and I feel like that's the type of confidence that I see in you because you are very open about your vulnerabilities and you know you've, mm. you've just told me about your losses and I'm so sorry mm. to hear about them but in in sharing there is great strength Oh, yeah. And I share, number one, I think it's a privilege. I'm, I'm, a, I'm in a place in my life and career where I see it as a privilege to share. And also, especially on like spaces like TikTok, my audience is really young. They are 19, mm. they're 20. And I'm like, how different would life have been if I had like a woman who looked like me, who was like late 20s, mid 30s, being like, these are the hurdles. This is how we get through them. The pain and the heartache is not forever. Game changer. And so now I take pleasure in being that like forward slash vulnerable, confident auntie. Um, but it's not like your traditional confidence. Like I hate public speaking, shake like a leaf. I hate red carpets. Like I'm like, oh, chow, is there a back door? We ain't doing this. <laughs> I'm very like, I... I don't mind being the face or head or something if I'm in a controlled environment that I'm controlling. And when I feel like I'm not in control, I'm just not interested. And so, so many people who m finally meet me because I so rarely leave my house, they're like, oh my gosh, you're like so shy and coy. And I'm like, yeah, like, I'm not like, whoa, stars, rainbows. I'm, I just think sometimes, especially because of social media, we confuse that vulnerability type of confidence and being like, it's all about me all the time, big, big, big. Like the all about me, the being front facing for the entirety of my career is like my worst nightmare. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Looking for a treat to pair with your favourite book? Bailey's is the perfect accompaniment to enjoy either over ice or over coffee. Well, let's move on now to your third book, yeah. which has helped so many people which mm. is so important to so many people it's Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings <sighs> I, I just because this is a podcast I'm just going to describe your face as I said that. it was like it was like lights from heaven had just shone down it was like an oh moment your smile went so wide and you looked so gracious and grateful it's a book that so many of us are grateful for it's one of the most widely read and taught books mm. written by an african-american woman mm. this is the first of seven autobiographical works written by dr maya angelou published in 1969 it follows maya's life from age three up until age 16, where we learn of her unsettled and often traumatic childhood where she endured both rape and racism. Maya wrote this book as a way of dealing with the death of a friend and her own experiences of discrimination and extreme poverty. There are so many books about the African-American experience rather than black British writers 
um, which we've just talked about. So what was it like to struggle to see yourself in the books that you were reading? Oh, it was... It, it didn't begin as a hard thing because I had such a vivid, wild imagination. But I think as I got a bit older and also I was going to New York so often that maybe that was my top up. I don't know, you know, maybe that was me being like, oh, this isn't so bad because then I spend six weeks with my American cousins and we're doing all the things and da 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 da. But then some, and I think I found her book on my dad's ex-wife's bookshelf that woman she was a lot of things but she was also a very very big reader um and I remember kind of like reading it in secret because the the themes are really hard hitting and just being absolutely transformed by and I hadn't yet because there was no internet heard her speak I hadn't heard that tone that was that all, voice woo, I, yes. I, I hadn't heard that yet but I felt it in the passion through the words and the storytelling and also I think by the time I picked up that book my childhood was so chaotic and so disjointed and you know crime and domestic violence and moving almost 13 times in nine years that by the time I arrived at her work it was almost like desperation and like some kind of cosmic kismet where it was like, you have to read this now to know that there are people going through it even more than you who have come out the other side. So I was very, very grateful for that. And I smile so broadly because I think I've recently become very, very obsessed with the idea of having like this older auntie mentor. And actually, um, they don't always necessarily need to be someone who actually know. And I feel that in her work. I feel that in the work of Oprah. You know, it's like maybe we we won't be able to meet the women that um, have genuinely helped us forge a path ahead. But having her work to engage with is just, it's top tier. Like, I can't get over it, to be fair. Yeah, she really did. There's a clip of her, I think... um think on desert island did years ago and just hearing that voice it's it's melodic it's the tone like you just said and she says and um, that her mother was the one who um put her foot in the door she said yeah. like, she put her foot in the door up to her hip <laughs> <laughs> and paved the way and let every woman come after yeah. she kept that door open for them yeah um on the subject of which, your second book, Sister Sister, yeah. it's a compilation of essays about all the things that you, you wish someone had talked to you about when you were a young black girl mm. growing up in London. I guess like that sort of anti-figure. Yeah. Um, was that book, was that an attempt to redress the balance in, in some way or to write to your younger self? Definitely to write to my younger self. I will go on record and say that a, a big career regret of mine was writing that book when I did I wish I had let the success of my first book I'm not your baby mother marinate a little bit more instead of getting caught up in this idea that oh we must keep the audience engaged you know social media has is great but it's also just um it's really diluted how long good art takes and it's made us so hungry and so insatiable that now it's like we don't give our favourite writers, actors, whoever, the grace and the time to go away and create work that we can really engage with. Sister Sister is still a great book. 
I just feel like we could have given the first book more breathing room and then this book more breathing room. Um, to even go back to like Sister Soldier, um, she followed The Coldest Winter Ever up 22 and a half years later. Um, God, I was so mad. I was so mad. <laughs> just I was, waiting. I was like, just girl, sitting what, there girl, looking at is, the Glock. <laughs> like, like, sis, is your laptop broken? Do we need to do a GoFundMe? Because like, <laughs> what's going on? Like, and then I, and I know I'm not in the minority in this one. And then it really wasn't worth the wait, unfortunately. So many of us feel like that. The follow-up was actually, she could have kept it in the draft, so it's okay. Um, but, but, or just released it way earlier oh, before, oh before it was gosh, finished. Same thing. Oh, but that gap, how hungry we were as fans, it shows me that that's still a thing, that that's still important, you know? And so I wish I'd held off on Sister Sister for a bit, but writing that book was definitely an ode to my younger self. And it was definitely me trying to fill that gap. Because I remember being 14, 15 and reading books like, I don't know, Vernon God Little, Agnes Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging and just, you know, teen stuff, but also mm. like, I'm not the main character and these aren't necessarily my struggles. And why are we not talking about chemically straighten our hair and skin bleaching and colorism and you know and and black culture and and so that was me almost like two fingers up to the stories I had to read as a teen because by then I'd grown out of that whole everything's a fairy tale I can put my head on anyone's body I was hungry for literature that spoke exclusively to me, especially since I've come across work like Sister Soldier, where I was like, wow, our African-American friends have it good because they are, you know, they're overflowing with literature that is directly for them and about them. And so Sister Sister is me trying to close that gap. You mentioned your Sunday Times bestseller, yeah. I'm Not Your Baby Mother. It, of course, evolved from your blogging. Mm. Um, you started blogging back in 2015 yeah specifically to address the mm. narrow middle class white lens mm. through which we culturally speak about motherhood mm. was there a particular moment that inspired you to start sharing your experiences yes when i was pregnant with my first child i had to get all of my literature about pregnancy shipped in from the us every single book that enraged me something chronic. Number one, I was really broke then and paying the postage on that made me so mad. But um, there was nothing. And when I say nothing, I still find this very shocking to say, I'm Not Your Baby Mother was the first book available in the British Library about black British motherhood, point blank period. Like it really broke boundaries. Yeah, we, that's crazy. That is great. In 2020. 2020. 2020. Like there was no 2020, other title where you could be like anything specifically about the black British motherhood experience. It did not exist. And so even years before that, I knew that that in one way or another was going to be work I had to create. Second to that, I had a very traumatic birth experience with my firstborn that I couldn't put a name to or data to because that was in 2013 and then in 2018 we get the embrace report that states at that time black women were five times more likely to die in childbirth and here are the stats and the things that go wrong and I'm just sitting there with my black girlfriends like oh my god we've 
all had this experience in one way or another and those things like packaged up I was like okay a, a story like this needs its moment and I'm not gonna lie I'm not your baby mother was almost not published um it got the proposal got bounced around quite a few times and a lot of publishers were not interested they were like this is too narrow we don't think there's a market for this kind of literature can you perhaps broaden your um like <laughs> doesn't that go against the entire point like to broaden it does it does it have to say black on the cover like these were the That's literal the questions or there was also like you're such a good writer but go and grow your social media to like a hundred thousand and maybe we'll think about it and so i think i was two weeks out from i i was just about to sign a contract to self-publish to fundraise to self-publish and i put the word out about that on social media and a friend i knew through a running club was like hold on hold on hold on do not do that i work for this publishers i think this is something we could get behind long story short that's the only reason i'm not your baby mother came to pass and um I knew how I, number one, I knew how important that work was. And also I knew that because it was one of one, the control I could have, because the reality is new authors don't have a lot of control. And I don't think many people know that you usually don't have final say over your own front cover. You usually don't have final say over your title. And I was like, I, I think it was even included in the contract. I was like, you only get this book if we don't change the title. I was like, there can be no modifications to what this book is called everything is so important and also second to that I've clocked your staff and there's not one black member of staff so what we're gonna do right now is trust everything I'm saying because who I'm trying to market this book to you don't know them and you don't understand them and luckily they just let me have my way what none of us could predict was that the book came out three days after George Floyd was murdered no one could predict that no one could predict that that newborn of a book was then pulled into these ginormous lists of literature that was said would help you unlearn your racism and teach you about the injustices of the world. I was just sat there looking at my screen like, what on earth is going on? I didn't expect that. <laughs> well, thank you for raising your voice. Um, thank you as well for the campaigning that you're doing mm. urgently for equal care for mothers. Yeah. Um, it it sometimes feels like banging your head against a brick wall because mm. like you just described, it's hard, but um, bit by bit, yeah. I, I hope things are getting better. Yeah. We'll move now on to your fourth bookshelfy book this week, which mm. is What I Know For Sure by Oprah Winfrey. Mm. What I know for sure outlines the moments that shaped Oprah Winfrey into the phenomenally successful person she is today. Mm. Oprah shares her experiences and insights on overcoming hardship and how she used that strength to forge a path towards reaching her full potential. How come this book made your list? It made my list because it was one of the first books outside of the obvious, like The Secret, that really helped me tap into my woo-woo-ness. And by woo-woo-ness, I mean like I'm a deeply spiritual dream, um, intuition-led gal. And I can often sound insane. I think for many years... <laughs> Join the club, it's fine. Me too. For many years, I feel you. my husband, my management team, my friends, I'd say something that I wanted to do something or make something happen. They'd all go, girl, we don't see any entry point for that. 
And then six months to a year later, it would happen. And then they'd be like, oh my gosh, she pulled it off. Now everyone's just like, if she says it, it's going to be. My nickname, my kids call me wizard. They're like, if mummy said it, we know. No one knows how it's going to happen. We just know it is. (laughs) (laughs) Mummy manifests. And hearing like Oprah talk about in a very in a far more intelligent way talk about how she has allowed that inner knowing and that voice and that intuition to guide her life and shape her career this is like you know a poor girl from Mississippi again lots of abuse and trauma who is the Oprah Winfrey I just I listened to a book like that and I was like none of this is an accident and you deeply know what you're here to do and you always have to take that inner voice to the gym especially as a woman especially as a black woman i think it's easy for people to talk us out of that inner voice what do you know there's no data to support that and you're like the first on the scene like you're one of one and and so it's really hard sometimes to be in a boardroom or read an email where you're like this isn't me and i'm gonna have to stand up for myself and i feel so small and so alone and hearing oprah say how she like plotted her entire life based on that inner knowing i was like yeah this is a this is a bit of me what does Oprah mean to you? Oh my gosh. What does Oprah mean to me? <laughs> I just laugh. I laugh because I'm like, she needs to stay alive long enough for me to like go to her birthday party, number one. Um, <laughs> go for a hike with her. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, stay alive, girl. A long hike and like, I'd love it. I remember coming home from school. So this is late 80s, early 90s. And I think the Oprah Winfrey show was on like Channel 4 back then. And just watching it just because aside from her and a black woman that used to read the news on Channel 3, that was all you were getting in terms of representation. But even without knowing the data and not being in the, not living in the US, I knew how powerful the Oprah Winfrey show was. And she like set pace for me thinking that the kind of career I have was even possible. And I know she just feels like an obvious pick, but again, it's that Mallory Blackman-esque kind of guiding light. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, they are one of one at this moment, but them doing that lets you know that these things are going to be possible. So she actually has so much to do with why I'm sitting here, to be fair. Just navigating our place in the world and the lane that we are capable of slaying in. She's yeah. laid a groundwork and, and created a vocabulary around it yeah. that just didn't exist before her. Um, I actually, I, I'm interested in, the, in your approach to, to raising your children, sort of with mm. that in mind. I mean, do you take a different approach between your little boy, mm. um, RJ, and, and your girl, Esme? Because you said that you and your husband made the decision to move out of the capital, for mm. example, when you found out your second child would be a boy. Mm. Uh, how do you see plotting their futures or them plotting their futures? Um, I'm really... One of the greatest gifts I can give them is, um, in my opinion, nepotism. I would love for Esme to turn 20 and just be like, I'm going to do 12 months working here and I can because everyone knows my mum. And because that's how so much of the most privileged have amassed their careers and their wealth and their ideas. And that kind of nepotism in the black community is seriously lacking and seriously important if we even want to have 
a smidge of an honest conversation about equity, let alone equality. It's like I need some people to just be hiring my kids just because they might not even be the best at the job, but mummy's laid the groundwork. And you know, so many people usually get so offended by that until they're given a moment to sit down and realize that there's a certain area of the world in the career space where that's how it operates. So for them, so much of what I do is trying to allow that gift of nepotism into their lives. Also peace. Um, I had a very unpeaceful childhood, which I've paid for very deeply. And so now protecting their peace at all costs is really important to me. I'm obsessed with data. I'm obsessed with crime actually and i think i would have been like a forensic scientist or a mortician in a different life um i still want to own funeral homes but that's a different discussion and i was deeply saddened and very obsessed with the data surrounding knife crime in the capital so when we found out i was having a boy i was like there's actually no way that i can conceive trying to raise him in this space I just couldn't do it. I, I feel like we could just about do it with Esme, but with a young black boy, I was like, he could be such a target. Like it just wasn't gonna happen. And so their lives are so different. Um, They're so different. And I've noticed how that piece gives them mental space to create and manifest on a level that I, that I wasn't even able to do until my early to mid twenties. The things my, daughter says or researches i just look at her in awe and i'm like and you get to do that because you're allowed to be a child and i don't think if we'd stayed living in the capital that i would have been able to pull that off we have mentioned her name several <laughs> times over the course of this episode and it is time to discuss her a little bit more because yeah. your fifth and final bookshelfy <laughs> book, Candice, is Mallory Blackman's Just Saying. Yeah. The long-awaited autobiography <laughs> of one of the world's greatest children's writers and an empowering and inspiring account of a life in books. Talk to me about Auntie Mallory. Ah, oh, Auntie Mallory. It's so funny, I had the proof copy of the autobiography because I had to interview her and my daughter bounds into my room and she's like, oh my gosh, we've got this woman's books in our library. And it's that, it's now intergenerational. It's like Stormzy bringing Auntie Mallory into music videos and helping her work become televised. And I don't know, like when I met her, there was just this, such this gracious exchange of energy where she knows, I think, deep down what she's done for any black British writer now coming up. But she there's not an there's not a stroke of ego or mm -mm. arrogance. There's nothing. There's <laughs> actually nothing. And you know what? I was very clear with my YA um novel that the characters had to look black on the cover and I didn't receive an ounce of pushback over that and that's because an auntie Mallory exists and she wrote books in a time where she got tons of pushback for wanting to write YA about racism and having black kids on the cover and you know and so being able to sit down with someone who has made my job so much easier just made me super emotional and super overwhelmed and what her what her autobiography taught me is that as with most black women of any time she had hell she had hell and 
on top of having hell, what her autobiography taught me is to stop being consumed with my age or aging out of success. I think I'm guilty of being smothered by being bombarded with 30 under 30. And this 20 year old has sold their company for X million. And this 22 year old is on their fifth property. And Auntie Mallory didn't start to get published until her mid thirties. Her books have only just begun to start being televised and she's in her sixties. It takes as long as it takes, and but taking that time doesn't take away from the impact. And I am very interested in long-term success, which five years ago, I wouldn't have said. I would have been like, instant gratification, now, 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 awards, woo, yeah, me, me, me. And like, stepping outside of my ego um, has been hardcore, but also... I see the payoff when I meet people like her. I'm like, oh, this is a long climb. This isn't, this is anything that happens overnight can be taken away just as quick. And so I'm not interested in that. It makes me feel genuinely um, quite like emotional hearing you talk about Mallory Blackman in this way, because, you know, the same as you, she was the voice of a generation. And she she presented to me on the pages of a book the first time I'd ever, ever, ever seen an interracial couple mm-hmm. other than my own family. I didn't know they existed outside of my family. And the solace that I found in, in Noughts and Crosses mm. was life-saving in many ways. Yeah. I, found, I found peace and I found... I, I understood the struggles of my parents that they would have mm. gone through. I understood so much that I wouldn't have understood otherwise. And so I feel very grateful to her. And just like you... Um, interviewed her three times in the last two years and her graciousness is nothing short of phenomenal yeah. and like <laughs> awe-inspiring <laughs> I was just looking at my because I never go on Twitter I was just looking on my Twitter the other day I was like oh, let's have a little look at this because it's a hellhole just turn it off again but I had a quick look at it and she'd messaged me to say thanks for having me on your show and I was like are you kidding me do you know what I mean thanks for having me Wait, no, like I- <laughs> when I walked in she done this little bow to me and I was like if you no, don't no, get no. up yeah. <laughs> do like, you know who you yeah. are number one get up then she was like I'm so happy you found the time in your schedule to do this and I was like girl if I was in Australia I would make Concord run again yes and we will get it done like yes but it just (laughs) and it's just proof that all she cares about is the work yes like you know no gloss no rainbows no ego it's the work and her writing I had no idea though I'll I'll admit that I had no idea I'd end up a YA author but speaking with her and doing the work that I do now I'm like duh this was the only way it was gonna go because the power that YA authors have in regards to planting seeds and turning heads and changing opinion is it's so hard to change the opinion of a 40 year old it's a lot easier to get into the mind of a 13 14 year old and have them think about things in a different um, moral sense and so I just think she is dynamite and has impacted my career in ways that she may never know she always says that the pushback and the abuse because she's yes. had a lot of abuse, the abuse that she got for inverting the racial yeah. structures um, of society in in noughts and crosses it was never from children ever they got it it was always from adults um, and it's a, a very sad truth, but also I guess there's hope in that because it's the it's the kids who are gonna it's who the, are gonna the, stick the around. The kids are the future, you know. <laughs> They're the future. And it makes me so 
it makes me chuckle because I'm like, so what is it about inverting the process of racism that makes you so uncomfortable? Yeah. It's because it's why awful, do you, isn't it? Do you, do you know what? Why is that a problem yeah. for you? Why is that so hard to even conceive in a fictional sense? Because it's not nice, you know? I love the way she cares so deeply about that world that she created. I remember the mm. first time I interviewed her, she had a t-shirt. It was the 20th anniversary <laughs> of North Cross. She had a t-shirt on with um, Sefi, Callum, Aww. all of the characters' names on the front. Because she loves them. Yeah. Um, and you, of course, have, have gone into developing a world like this, creating mm. a world like this, cut both ways, yeah. is a YA novel. Mm. Um, how did you develop and find your own voice in fiction? Are there any particular lessons that you're you've learned and are then trying to impart as well along the way any lessons I think when it comes to fiction um the best fiction is always rooted in some kind of reality and about trying to plug that gap and the idea for cuts both ways came very very quickly off the the night I handed in the manuscript of sister sister cuts both ways was born I was in the kitchen drinking wine and my husband was like so what's next I was like shush because you always put too much pressure on me and then four hours later with conceived this world I have to say though with no contract on the table eight weeks later I get a call from um one of my literary agents and they're like I've had a call from such and such and they'd love if you write YA you got any ideas I said well would you look at that I actually do have an idea cuts both ways came together from like conception to being published it was exactly a year that's that that is so quick in the publishing world. Yeah. And I was really, um, I was really trying to give um, girls that look like me the love story I thought they deserve, create a male black character in Isaac that I thought I would love to have been loved on as a teen. And most importantly, in a fictional sense, create a space where young adults and teens could perhaps go to their parents and say, you know, I'm being groomed into being in a gang or knife crime is a serious worry for me because that's the backbone of the story. It is about knife crime. And I feel like the easiest way to access such troubling realities is through fiction. And the onslaught of love that book receives, I do have to log out sometimes because I'm just like, I have to step away from this creation because I never want it to inflate my ego because to watch young kids and parents read it, it almost seems like they've been they've been made to go thirsty for like a thousand years. And now there's finally literature that speaks to their current reality. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's blown me away a bit, to be fair. Candice, my final question to you is just very simply, if you had to choose one book <laughs> from your list as a favourite, which one would it be and oh, why? Again, I'm going to describe your face because it's a podcast and you look <laughs> perplexed, to say the least. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm a bit annoyed, but it's the truth. Um, The Coldest Winter Ever by Sister Soldier. Not just because of the story, but also, also the lessons I learned about marketing. And that's how I entered the publishing world. I, I was in a marketing role first. And to see how that book seeded itself in a time before social media, I, it's really hard to even get book sales like that today with the power that we have that is the internet. So more grease to her elbow. But yeah, Sister Soldier, um, coldest winter ever. Can I just ask, do you still have that book? Is it the same copy? 
No, it's not the same copy. I don't even think it was my copy. Right. I think it was a friend's copy. So I bought a new copy in 2020. But you, copy. but crucially, you have it. You can use it as an accessory I, like it was back in the day. I have it. It's still <laughs> Put it in like... the middle of the bus. <laughs> like, I do, I do, because one, one of the great things about being an author now is I never, ever pay for books. I get sent so many copies and so many proofs. And it's the one that never goes to charity or gets donated. Yeah. Like, that's mine forever. Hang on to that. Well, I'm hanging on to every single word. Thank you so much, Candice. I've absolutely loved chatting to you. And, oh, I just, yeah, I feel re- I feel ready. I feel very ready <laughs> for anything. So thank you. Oh, no, thank you for having me. This has been great. I'm Vic Hope, and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.